Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Great to be here. Like Karen mentioned, three of our pastors are out ministering in other places. Um, So you have me this morning. But we're all together. We are the church together, and it's really good to be with you. I don't know what kind of mood you're in or where your head is at, what you're carrying into this place. I don't know if you maybe woke up with the sunrise and prepared your heart all day for church, or if you barely managed to get your body in this building today. But as we shared in our prayer circle before the service, the most important work that gets done at this church isn't the work we do. It's the work that God does for us. And if you came here today barely able to just make it here at all, have faith that God can still work in your heart regardless of your level of preparation because he cares about you. And he wants you to meet him here today. Yeah, amen. Thank you. This morning, we've had a long string of guest speakers, and uh, this morning, I want to return to that short series that we picked up some weeks ago on spiritual warfare. Now, I know that we are seeing a massive resurgence in the fantasy genre in entertainment, where wizards and spells and this kind of supernatural warfare is very commonplace in entertainment. But that is not the primary way I want us to think about spiritual warfare. I'm not suggesting that those kinds of elements don't exist in this universe, but that is not going to be the primary way in which most of us experience spiritual warfare or are become, or become the casualties of that warfare. Spiritual warfare and the work of our enemy, Satan, touches our lives quite differently in most circumstances than we might expect. And if we're not able to spot that work, if we don't know how to recognize what he's doing, we will really succumb to whatever he's doing, and we won't even be able to defend ourselves or seek the defense of God, because we won't even be realizing that we're under attack. The message this morning is called, no, that's not, I'm sorry, that's not the message this morning. (laughs) <laughs> I think that was Pastor Jess' message. Let's see if we can uh, load up the slides from this morning. Anyway, let me ask you this. Okay, before you even show that first slide, let me ask you a question. What do you picture Satan does all day long? Like, if you think about this character, this biblical figure named Satan, what would you guess is his primary activity or how he spends most of his time and energy? What would your guess be? You can shout out. I know that, that, uh, that we're not used to doing that at a church, but just shout out. What, what's, what's your guess at what he spends his day doing? Plotting. Plotting against us. Okay, yeah. Destroying? Deception? Tempting us, yeah. I think that's probably, that last one is especially is probably the thing we picture most, is Satan just running around dangling goodies in front of people, trying to lure us like a creep into the white van so that we can be abducted spiritually. I mean, that's what we picture. He's just constantly messing with us, trying to get us to compromise our morals. And it's true that Satan is a liar, a destroyer, a thief. He is a tempter. 
But you might be surprised to learn that his majority activity is actually accusation. Did you know that the, the Hebrew name Satan literally translates to accuser? Accuser. In a courtroom setting, he would be the prosecuting attorney. He would be the DA bringing a case against you. He would be the one pointing his finger self-righteously at you and saying, you have done nothing right, everything wrong. You deserve to be in the place of judgment on trial for your life. That would be his role. Accusing is at the heart of the nature and character and spirit of Satan himself. So much so that if God is love, then Satan is accusation. His name means that. He is the accuser. When you look at Revelation 12, 12, 10, listen to this. It's a picture, uh, an apocalyptic vision of the heavenly realms. And here's what John sees. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, and by the way, this is towards the climax of the book of Revelation. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for what? The accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. The one who accuses them before God day and night. This is what Satan spends his time doing. Day and night, incessantly, he stands before God proclaiming a case against you and me, pointing out every wrong thing that we have done and seeking through that accusation to produce condemnation in us and in the spirit and the heart of God towards us. That's his goal. He won't succeed, but that doesn't mean he won't keep trying. I mean, don't, don't you know people like that? Maybe some of us are that kind of person. No matter how often we feel, we're just going to keep trying. If I haven't succeeded, I'm going to keep trying. Satan is that way too. He's stubborn in the worst possible way. He will not give up trying to condemn the very people who God has saved by his grace. He will never, ever stop. One day he will be stopped, but he will never stop himself. And it says, day and night, Without ceasing, in our dreams, even when we're not paying attention, this is what he is after. So the setting is a royal throne room, a king seated on the throne. And, and, and you know, you, we picture a modern-day courtroom, but really think about a king who has power over everything in his realm. And he's seated on a throne, and there are a bunch of people in front of him, and someone brings a case against the accused. The prophet Zechariah had such a vision in Zechariah 3. When's the last time you took a journey through the book of Zechariah? Some of us are like, that's in the Bible? Yeah, it's an actual book in the Bible. It's a very interesting book, and one we probably don't read very often in the modern church, but it contains a really fascinating vision. And what's weird about this vision is it's not just allegorical. Uh, It involves a real-life person who is a contemporary to the prophet. In this vision in Zechariah 3, he sees a vision of a man named Joshua, who at that time served as the high priest in Israel. And this was after they returned from exile. So let me, let me set the context for you. 
Israel rebelled against God, and they were deeply committed to this rebellion. No matter how often he corrected them, sent prophets to redirect them, they loved their sin, they were prideful, they wanted to rebel against God, and so as a result, God said, I, these people, I have to save them from themselves, and so he raised up Babylon to capture them, take them away, lose all their autonomy as a nation, and during the years of exile, God sent more prophets who would humble them, and they repented, and eventually God in his mercy returned them out of exile to bring them back to their land. And you would think that after such a a harrowing rescue and all that process of restoration, people would go straight, right? Can you imagine if someone commuted your sentence after you had deserved to be in prison, you get out and you're like, that's it, I'm never going back in that place. And the very next day you're out there doing the same crimes. World is full of that kind of thing. People who don't want to end up in that bondage, but they just do it again and again and again. We're not just talking about them. We're talking about us, aren't we? Isn't that the story of our lives? Again and again, like it's a stubborn illness. And so he's addressing these people, and Joshua happens to be the high priest at that time, and he's responsible for the spiritual condition of his people. So in this vision, listen to what it says. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Do you see that? So that's Satan's role. Here's Joshua representing all the people of Israel. So he's not just accusing Joshua. He's accusing through Joshua all the people that Joshua represents. Say, see all these people you're so fond of that you keep rescuing God? I don't get you. Why do you keep doing it? They don't deserve your rescue. They don't deserve your mercy. What they deserve is what they had in Babylon. They deserve to be stripped of their power, stripped of their freedom, to be exiles and slaves in another land. They don't deserve your mercy. And this is his accusation regarding them. And look at what it says further. This is so fascinating to me. Now, Joshua, the high priest was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Isn't that interesting? Because this is an allegorical vision now, but involving a real-life person, and he says his clothing was filthy. If you know anything about the Old Testament and temple worship among the Jews, the, the priest had to be very clean before he could function in his capacity. There were ritual washings. His garments had to be pristine. There were so many things revolving around cleanliness in the temple as a symbol pointing forward to what Christ would ultimately do for us in an ultimate cleansing. And yet here is the high priest representing all the people of Israel, and his clothes are disgusting. I can relate to this because we've been moving, and most of my stuff has been trapped in boxes. So for a whole week, I've been wearing the same nasty pair of lined Crocs. I couldn't find my undergarment box for a little bit, and so, you know, I kept going. You get what I'm saying? It's, I, I, can, I can relate to this feeling of when you're in grungy clothing, you don't feel good, and you're so tired at the end of the day, you can't even get the energy to shower. You just get in your bed and you just sleep. So here's the high priest, filthy clothes, and he points to the filthy clothes and says, do you see those clothes? That's the spiritual state of these people. You keep serving. What is your problem, God? They don't deserve your mercy. Here's what's so fascinating to me about this, is that Satan is not wrong. Their clothes are filthy. 
They have sinned the very same sins which led them to be put into exile in the first place. The problem with Satan's accusation is not that he's factually wrong. When Satan lies, he lies about a lot of things, but when he accuses us, very often he's not lying about what he's pointing out in us. He's actually right. We did do those things, and it drives him crazy that we get away with it. It drives him crazy that we could be actually guilty of these things and have a way out when he does not. It makes him insane that we have access to mercy, which he never will. The problem with Satan's accusing spirit is not that he is inaccurate, because often that's the only time he tells the truth, is when he makes a case against us before God, pointing to things we have actually done. That's why it bothers us when people judge us, right? Because their their self-righteous judgment is annoying, but half the time they're saying things that are actually true of us, and we know it in our own spirit. We just don't like hearing it through other people's mouths. But if no one else said it, we'd know. I, I know I do that. I know I have a tendency to do that. The problem is not the substance of what Satan is saying when he points his finger at us. It's the heart with which he does it, and it's the intent that he ultimately has. His goal is to destroy our faith, to discourage our hope, to separate us from God, and ultimately in that shame and condemnation to separate us from one another as well. His whole goal in pointing out the wrong we have done is not to produce any kind of remorse or repentance. It is to destroy us, to condemn us, to lead us even to condemn one another and to condemn ourselves. Here's the fascinating thing. Both God and Satan shine light on the wrong that we do. One of the primary activities of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our sin. That's what we call a conscience. And you know something's really wrong with a person when they do bad things and don't realize they're doing bad things. We call those people sociopaths, technically. That's a psychological term for someone who is destructive to others, is immoral, and cannot actually understand that they're being immoral. Why is it wrong to kick that dog? I don't get it. And you're like, something's not right. So here's the way it works. God also shines the light on... So if you just hear the words of the case presented against us, both God and Satan might agree in this one instance. You have done those things. You could have looked at anything on your computer, but you pulled up that website. You could have walked away from that tempting person, but you did not. You could have chosen to save that money and steward it better, but you indulged. There's so many. The list goes on and on, and he's not wrong, right? God and Satan typically agree on this one area, which is the wrong that we have done when they shine their light on it. It's actually, factually, historically true. We did those things. But here's where they part company. God convicts us of sin because he seeks to drive us towards repentance so that in that place of repentance, in that posture of repentance, he could forgive us and restore us to himself, to reconcile us. It's like when you're in a fight with someone you love and all you want, even though you want to win the fight, what you want even more in your humbler 
tender moments is to be restored to that person. Amen? I know you wish you could crush that person in the heat of your anger. You're like, I wish I could just make you for a second feel the way you make me feel all the time. I just wish I could get my revenge. And we think that in the flesh, but really that's anger expressing itself in a lazy way. What our hearts really want is to go back to days when we could just be trusting and in love and believe in each other and be safe with each other. That's what we want. God wants that with us whenever we stray from him. His aim is to gather us as his children back to himself, but he cannot just overlook the wrong we do, and so he wants to drive us to repentance so that through the forgiveness he offers, we can actually stand in his presence again and be restored to him. Right? If, if I sin against my wife and I just go, well, that was yesterday, let's just pretend it never happened, let's just move on, that won't work, will it, Jeannie? Um, We're not going to just pretend like yesterday didn't happen. Something has to occur to make that right. And then I think both of us want that. We want reconciliation. We want restoration. So when God points the light at our sin, he only has one aim, and that is to get us back to himself. And there's one way by which he does that. Through the way of the, the forgiveness offered to us in Jesus Christ. When Satan shines the light on our sin, he has a very different intention. It is to destroy us, to condemn us, to get us spiraling in the cycle of self-loathing and shame so that we're not just dealing with what we have done, but we're dealing with what that says about us, what it means for us, what we are. Satan seeks to take our sinful acts and build an entire identity around that for us to tell us what you do when you're bad is all that you are. There's nothing good in you. When God convicts us of sin, his aim is to redirect our attention, not at the wrong we've done, but at the amazing thing that Jesus Christ is offering to us. It's like being given a terrible diagnosis for a disease that should be terminal, and then saying, but listen, I'm telling you that you have this disease because I want you to know this crazy thing. A scientist in Sweden has just found the cure, and I want to offer it to you. When God convicts us of sin, his intent is not that we should dwell on our sin only, but that the dwelling on our sin should lead us to dwell on Jesus who offers a way forward. Because if you don't take that way forward, the only other path available is condemnation. And it's not other people condemning us. It's us condemning ourselves, destroying ourselves, walking away from God when he's the only one who gives us a future. When Satan accuses us of sin, the focus is entirely on our failings. You know, he's right. I did do that. And I can't seem to get myself to stop doing that. That's all I am. And when I look at other people, the way they react to me, I see a mirror held up. That's all I am in their eyes too. I am nothing more than this bad thing that I do. I'm a failure. I'm worthless. I'm not worthy of love. No one should take any chances on me. I will probably let them down. I'm a loser. Do you see how the the Spirit of God and the enemy both whisper or shout to us true things about what we've done. But God's voice always follows with an invitation to come and discover new life again. To be restored and forgiven, set free. Always that's the follow-up. 
It's never just a voice of destruction and condemnation. But when the enemy accuses us of sin, he has a very different agenda. Now, let's for a moment take ourselves out of the spotlight. Think about if you had someone, a daughter, a son, a friend, who you really cared about. Or maybe uh, you have aging parents who keep sending money to scammers on the Internet. Oh, David, you know, we just found out that this one Nigerian prince needed some help. And you're like, no, that's a scam. And you you see this person being seduced by a voice that does not have their best interest in mind. The worst part is they're listening to it. There's this boy who's just terrible for your daughter, this girl who's just wrong for your son. And it's not like you're just, you just know this is not going to go somewhere good, and you're trying to tell them. Maybe it's your friend. Have, you, have all of us been in that place where one of our friends is off with somebody, and you're like, oh, no, that ain't it. Run for the hills, honey. And yet, no matter what everyone around them says, they can't seem to hear it. Isn't it so frustrating when the most destructive voice is the one we want to hear the most? The one we can't seem to silence. And the condemnation and the accusation of our enemy gets spoken to us in both the voices of others and our own inner voice. Probably our own inner voice is the most condemning of all. You loser. You did it again. You swore last year up and down. You're, you're done with this. You're never going to. And there you are like a dog returning to its vomit. You are no better than this. You are hopeless. You're never going to get better. You'll never be different. And that voice is so destructive. It is so in error. It is so not of God. And yet it is the voice we so often can't seem to turn off. If someone you cared about was under the influence of a voice like that, what would you say to them? What would you say to them? Let me ask, my children are in front of Zoe. If you had a friend who was going off with the wrong guy and you just knew he was wrong, for what would you say to her? Don't. Wake up. That guy's lying to you. I know it sounds right, but it's not right. We would say, wake up, wake up, listen. James 4, 7, I don't have a slide for it, but James 4, 7 says this, resist him. Not just in your own power, but still you have some agency. You're not just a shuttlecock in a badminton game between God and Satan. You have agency. And here's what James says, just resist him. Tell him to shut up. And if you do it, he will flee from you. Problem is, we're tempted to believe that voice because we think also that it's true of us. That I am worthless. I'm done. I'm spent. I'm used. I'm damaged. No one really would want me if they saw what was in my heart. If they saw my past, no one would even believe that I sit in a church on Sundays. That condemning, lying voice is not from God. Do you understand this? Even if the facts of it are true, that voice is not from God. God will never just say to you, you did those things, what are you doing here? He will say, you did those things. Come back to me. Wake up, come home. Return. 
when we're reminded of our sin, if it's from God, we'll know it because of the response it produces in our spirit. If the response we have to the sin in our lives is just to be condemned and destroyed, that never comes from God. Never. It will always have a satanic origin. If the result of your conviction about your sin is to be destroyed in your inner being, to become hopeless and in despair. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should be like, oh, I'm not so bad. I didn't do that. I'm not saying live in denial of your sin. Live in a a casual way about your sin. But if the conviction of sin leads you only to dwell on your sinfulness and not on the mercy of Jesus who invites you back, that is not from God. And if you dwell in that place too long, not in a place of remorse and repentance, but in a place of shame and regret and self-condemnation over and over, believing that God does not want to have anything to do with you anymore. It will cost you your faith. The right response when God is the one pointing out our sin is that there is a conviction deep in our spirit that is grieving and wants more than anything else to return to him. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter preached the most insensitive and confrontational, non-seeker-sensitive sermon in the history of preaching. He was just in your face. Yeah, you all did it. I had this awesome friend. He was a savior of the world. He was my good friend. He was God in the flesh. And you all killed him, all of you. That's not how we preach around here, but that's the way God wanted Peter to preach that day. And the amazing thing is, it worked. (laughs) Because God worked. And here's how we know that Peter wasn't channeling Satan when he was pointing his finger, but he was channeling God. You know how we know the difference? Because some people, they channel the devil when they're pointing out what you did wrong. They're agents for the devil. We know that God is at work because look at what happens in response to his sermon. Peter's words pierced their hearts. Some other translations said they were cut to the heart. Not because Peter's pointing finger made them feel bad, but because the spirit of the living God told them that's true and that there is a way forward. And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? That doesn't mean what works can we do to cleanse ourselves. It means what is our hope? What do we do with this? Because we know you're right. We want to make things right with God. That being pierced to the heart over our sin That's one of the ways that we know it's from God and not from the enemy. It's real repentance and real remorse, not just regret and shame, not just self-loathing, but a desire to reconnect and reconcile with God through the one means he's given us. King David, who is lifted up all the time in Scripture and throughout the churches of the world, was not a good guy. He was a good guy, but he was not a good guy. Is that true of anyone you know? I know that if you knew the truth about me, you'd say, oh, you, you're well-named, David. Because I, I, I have sides of me that's a good guy, and I have sides of me that's not a good guy. 
There was a day when David saw a beautiful woman bathing on a rooftop, and from the vantage point of his balcony on his temple, he desired her. But inconveniently, she happened to be married to one of his best friends and one of his most loyal warriors, a man named Uriah. But because David desired her, he arranged for Uriah to be killed on the battlefield so that Bathsheba would become a widow and he could marry her. He did it. The plan succeeded, went off without a hitch. Everything went exactly as he designed it, and Bathsheba became his wife. She got pregnant. And then one day, God raises up this man named Nathan who convicts David of his sin. And I don't know if you remember that story, but he does it in the most creative way. He tells an allegorical story of a rich man who, you know, basically abused a poor man and took the one thing he had. Anyway, at the end of the story, David's like, kill that guy. As long as I'm king in the land, such men should die. And what does Nathan say? You're that man. I'll never forget this one Hebrew phrase, Atahaish. That's the one Hebrew I remember from seminary because it pierced me when they said it. You are the man. Whatever you're outraged by, Whatever you're disgusted at, just know something. That's a mirror. You're that guy. Why is it so easy to be outraged at other people's sin, but not our own? Isn't that the whole lesson behind Jesus' hilarious story? The plank in your own eye, you've got this log sticking out of your eye, and you're like, hey, bro, you got a little speck in your eye. You're like, hey. It doesn't mean that your own sin is bigger than everyone else's. It just means you have such an easier time spotting the little sins in others' lives than the big sin in your own life. And other people around you have been trying to tell you for years, hey, that little sin in your, that big sin in your own life that you're trying to dismiss as a little sin, oh, I'm just short-tempered, oh, I'm just whatever. We dismiss our own sin, but let someone else be late to church or let someone else be whatever, and you're like, oh, look, see? You just are not faithful people. But not my sin. My sin is all just, hey, he's a little, a little personality quirk, you know, ha, <laughs> ha. I'm just, the, I'm, you know, it's so cute. I'm, I'm just not perfect. I'm only human. But you, and it's like you got this big telephone pole swinging out of your eye, and you can't help but see the speck in your brother's eye. But you were late. Come on. So David is pierced to the heart by what Nathan says. And in Psalm 51, he writes this most incredible song of lament and repentance. Restore unto me a clean heart, O God. Don't take your presence, your salvation from me. And at the end of that psalm, here's what he says as it, as it comes to a close. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want to burn offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. What good news. That if the conviction of sin results in a genuinely broken and grieving heart, there will never be a day where God rejects that. That one offering God desires more than other things. That you could hear the truth of the person you really are and it would produce a genuinely broken and contrite, and repentant heart. Here's some good news. 2 Corinthians 7.10. Listen to what Paul is saying, because this is exactly what we've been developing. 
For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. In other words, we're supposed to feel bad about sin. You're not supposed to feel okay with sin ever. Those true things, whether it's the devil telling you, whether it's God telling you, your sin should produce sorrow. Stop defending yourself. Stop excusing yourself. Why would you ever want to defend dysfunction? Why? What, is the, what do you win if you silence everyone who's trying to point out where things are broken in you? Stop defending yourself. Let the truth be told and sit in the holy sorrow of what you've done. Sit in it for a minute. Don't move on quickly. But if it's godly sorrow, that sorrow will lead to you turning to him and saying, please release me from this If you are in Christ, he has already paid the ultimate price for you. And so what you're saying to him is, remind me what you have done for me. That this sin does not define who I am. It does not define what my relationship with you will be. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. It's a good sorrow. We should feel it. But there's another kind of sorrow. It's worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance. That doesn't mean it's defined. It just means it's sorrow for its own sake. It's a fire that burns itself up. And it results in spiritual death because it does not lead us anywhere except condemnation. It's just a reminder of how awful we are with no good news on the other end of it. It's like the person who tells that story. Hey, remember that one time that you did this terrible thing? Yeah. Like, where's the punchline? Where's the rest of the story? Is that it for me? Is that all you think I am? God never leaves it hanging there. He always says, this is true of you. But this is also true of you. You are worse than you could imagine, but more loved than you could hope. We all know this verse, right? I mean, it's so familiar to us. If we confess our sins, there will never be a time where God will meet our genuine confession with anything other than forgiveness. This is important because sometimes we sin the same sins so often we're sick of ourselves. Is it just me? Am I in a room full of other sinful people too? Have you ever been so trapped in a repeated sin that you're like, if I were God, I wouldn't forgive me? I can't even muster up a thick enough skin to confess anymore because I'm like, good Lord, how often is this going to be me? All I ever wanted was to show kindness, but then I lost my temper again. All I ever wanted, and you just say it over and over. I was going to sit and read my Bible and have a cup of tea and journal, and then I sat on the toilet and doom-scrolled Instagram and TikTok for six hours. What happened? I hate myself. Why do I keep doing this? Have you ever been stuck in that place where you thought, surely I've expired his grace? We've run out. I, I can't even bear the thought of asking him, to forgive me again. And the good news of the gospel is you will never 
outsin God's willingness to forgive you and restore you to Himself. <clears throat> the gospel is not a Dave and Buster's card that runs out to zero in three hours. It's owning a Dave and Buster's and playing as long as you like because it's secured by someone else. <clears throat> if we return, <clears throat> excuse me, if we return to the vision that Zechariah had, the good news of the gospel is pictured in advance for us way back in the Old Testament. That here's Zechariah knowing his clothes are supposed to be filthy because that's the true state of Israel spiritually. And instead of God saying to, to, to um, Joshua in that, that uh, vision, you change your clothes, here's what happens, is in front of Satan, God gets in Satan's face, God advocates for Joshua, and God defends Joshua's cause, not because Joshua has merit, but because he says, is this not someone I picked? Israel did not, be, they didn't get my attention because they were better than everyone else. They got my attention because I chose them. I forgive them because I choose to forgive them. It's up to me, God says, who I cleanse and who I do not. And so the angel representing God said to those who were standing before Joshua, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua directly, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. This is the good news of the gospel. The only part we play is repenting and turning to God and asking for what we could not earn. That's it. I love what Sarah always says about the gospel. It is a beggar who has found food. Didn't produce it, found it, was given it. In Romans 2.4, I'm throwing a lot of scripture at you. Read the recap slowly when it comes out tomorrow. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? It is never God's condemnation that scares us straight. It is always his kindness. And here's what it means. Not that he giggles about our sin. He is deeply grieved by our sin. The kindness is this. He always holds out a way forward towards him. The kindness of God in the face of our sin is that he always opens up hope that there will be a future for us beyond this sin. That my story doesn't have to end because, look, I did it again. If God were not kind, we would never try to reconcile. You know, the, the, I think what has saved our marriage over and over is that even though sometimes we get very cross with each other, we always have experiences. At some point, one of us will venture across the table and go, mm -hmm. 
Sometimes I actually make this gesture to Jeannie as my way of saying, come on. And she's like, oh. but always we return to each other. I never go, oh, that's it for our marriage. I, I, I just can't feel because it's a covenant. And as long as the other person's willing to reciprocate when you go, please, don't you love that gesture? This is such a, a pleading. Isn't that, isn't that the more honest physicality, what we're feeling inside? Come back to me. My brother, my sister, my mom, my dad, my child, my husband, my wife, come back. I'm sick of this cold war between us. I'm sick of the divide between us. Come back. And what God's word says is every time we have that posture, he will reach his hand out. In fact, even before we do this, he's already doing it. This is amazing news. And that's why we repent, because there's hope that on the other side of the humiliation of repenting is forgiveness. Why else would anyone admit to the wrong that they have done? Why else? Except that on the other end of that is hope that that person you've wronged will restore you to themselves. I've got just a little time left. Uh, I'm going to end with the hard part of the sermon. <laughs> okay? that, that's good news. It's great to be told that that accusing voice that leads to condemnation away from repentance is not from us, or it's not from God, it's from the enemy. Here's the last piece of it you have to deal with. We are not, our enemy, Satan, is not the only one who accuses. There are many times when in the church especially, the accusing spirit of Satan is very much alive and well. Some call it sharpening. Some call it whatever they want to excuse the fact that they have turned their personality into a spirituality. Here's how we know what the, the source of our actions is. It's to see the spiritual result of it. It is to be exposed before the God who does not lie and know that what we did was truly in his name and not out of our flesh. The Bible has a lot to say about when we stand in judgment over our fellow human beings. There isn't one of us in this room who has the right to stand in judgment over another human being. None of us is a judge except God. Only God has the authority and the righteousness morally to judge. There is only one. And yet, it does not stop us from judging one another constantly. Now, those who are particularly judgmental in their wiring are already boxing with me a little. What are you saying? We should just be soft on sin? Are you saying that we shouldn't find the church? Of course, we're not saying any of those things. God, I already established, God does convict of sin. God does shine the light on wrongdoing. The issue is not in what you're saying, but in the manner and intent with which you're saying it. The very same words can come out of the mouth of our enemy or come out of the mouth of God. Very different results, very different intent. One will divide and condemn. 
The other will reform, restore, and reconcile. There are times when we have to get in each other's face. That's the church. If you want to live in a soft place, the church will not be it. I love the saying that we should be safe but not soft. Amen? I'm not advocating some sort of strange softness where we just go, sin is nothing. God's love is everything. It's not a rainbows and unicorn gospel which we're preaching here. But when we must stand in the place to channel God and voice or point the light at something wrong, every time we do it, we need to be very humble, very wise, very filled with the Holy Spirit. Just that energy of righteousness alone will not carry the day. That leads so often to destruction and division in the church from the hands of well-meaning people. People who love the church but don't realize that the manner in which they're seeking to refine the church is dividing the very church they love. Because when that person speaks, it doesn't feel or sound at all like it's from God, but it's from them. When we channel the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, we always do so with great caution, because if my flesh gets in that mix, the process breaks down. The minute I detect that you're not saying this because you care about my soul or the body of Christ, but you're just indignant towards me, you're disgusted by me, you have disdain towards me, you're deeply personally wounded by everything I did to you and all that, the minute I perceive that, even if you're right, my heart shuts down. I get defensive, I get defiant, don't you? But when we channel God, there is this sweet, powerful movement of the Holy Spirit. Not invariably, not infallibly, but this is what we aim for. Galatians 6.1, for example, tells us, okay, I'm sorry, that's the wrong, I don't have that one, there it is. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual. So already we're acknowledging there are going to be people who are doing well in the Lord and people who are transgressing in the same church. That's just going to always be the case. It says, if you see someone straying away, then yes, go. Go after that person. But listen to what Paul says. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And why would he have to say that last thing? Because when you see clearly that someone else is in the wrong in a place, and normally don't we convict others of sins that we're not guilty of? I'm never late to church. Y'all are always late to church. Yeah, but you're always angry at church. Yeah, but at least I'm on time. See, we challenge other people on the sins we don't struggle with. You and your substance abuse, but what about other things? I've never been tempted by drugs, but I have been tempted by alcohol. You could say alcohol is a drug. I like the taste of certain kinds of alcohol. And so I have to be careful. I've never been addicted to other things, but sometimes I struggle with the temptation to be addicted to a video game. Oh, Call of Duty, y'all. It's a problem. The reason he says that last part, keep watch over yourselves, is because when you are in the right and someone else is in the wrong, it is so easy for spiritual pride and self-righteousness 
to get factored into the dough so that instead of making a cake, you make something gross. Pride is what made the devil the devil. And sometimes it's ex- it expresses in the name of holy anger. Anger is only holy if it leads truly to a desire to see someone return to the Lord whom they walked away from. New Testament is filled with warnings against factiousness, division. In this last prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the number one thing on Jesus' heart seemed to be unity among those who would come to know the Savior. Not unity at all costs. But you have to understand just how important division and unity are in the heart of God. And if we're fighting for the church, we must fight in a way that channels the convicting spirit of God and not the condemning accusation spirit of the enemy. Even when we have to shun someone in the church, avoid fellowship to make them feel how alone they are, even then in the ultimate case, he says don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would a brother or sister. Are you catching the tenor of this? We should confront one another about sin. But I'm hesitant even to use the word confront. We should speak for God. But whenever we do so, if you are in the flesh, it's better for the church that you don't speak at all. Trust God to tell them some other means. Because if your flesh is all mixed in that and you're just indignant, you have disdain, you're disgusted by them. If you're saying to them, I don't even want to have fellowship with you then you should not be the voice that helps them see where they've gone astray from God. You should not. Let someone else do it. Let God do it directly to their conscience. Don't stir up. The goal of all conviction of sin is to lead people to salvation. Paralleling this whole thing about spiritual warfare is this armor which God has given. And this spirit of accusation and condemnation is the death blow to faith. It's what makes people walk away from the Savior. I'm not worth saving. There's no hope for me. It's not worth it. What's the point? I'll never get right. And so we walk away. And the helmet protects the most vital part of the soldier's body. You get hit in the head, you know, you can get shot in the shoulder, you're like, ugh, you keep fighting, but you get shot in the head, it's done. The helmet preserves the soldier's ability to keep going. And that helmet of salvation is not something we made for ourselves. It was purchased for us. It is a thing we retreat to every time the voice of condemning and accusation comes is that I was saved not by my own merit, but by the mercy of a God who loved me and chose me. I never saved myself, and I will not save myself now from this conviction of sin. I will turn yet again to my Savior for my hope. I won't make it right by being on time. I won't make it right by doing this. I won't make it right by giving to this. I won't make it right by serving on that team. I will make it right first.
by turning to the one who always saves me. I will ask him to restore my soul, to forgive me, to reconcile me to himself. I'll close by reading the rest of that passage we opened with in Revelation 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Let's just sit with those words for a minute. I want the praise team to come up. I just have a short response. I think a lot was stirred up and probably some need to just have dialogue to make sure we understand each other. So if you want to come talk with me about this message, if there's questions, I'll be around after church for a little bit. I'd love to just chat with you. I wonder if maybe you're here today finding yourself in the grips of the destructive voice of the accuser. Maybe you've heard it through the voice of other people who have tried to shame you or condemn you. Not convict you, but shame you and condemn you. Maybe you hear it every day through your own voice and maybe that voice echoes the voice of another person a mother, a father, a friend and you sit here today wondering why you belong in a church how you can sit in the presence of God do you know that every single person who sits in this room with you who stands on the stage in front of you are exactly the same Apart from God, we all have that aching question. But in front of God, we all share the one same answer. It is through mercy and grace that God says, I see your sin. I make a way forward for you. Don't pay for your own sins. Receive the payment already rendered. Return to him. Don't resist God. Resist the voice of the one who accuses you. Maybe what you needed to hear this morning is that even though you're trying to help the church refine, even though you're trying to grow the church, sometimes without even knowing it, your voice becomes the voice of condemnation rather than conviction. There's hope even for that. Begin just by checking your flesh, saying, God, I do want to see your church purified. I want to be a voice and an agent of change, but don't let me do it in the flesh. Always always with wisdom, humility, and gentleness, help me help the church. Never my own flesh, never my own disdain, but always a zeal for you and for your kingdom. Why don't we respond to God in the way that we need to in the next couple minutes? Then we'll close in a song. I'll pray for us.
just rise with us. Um, yeah, I mean, Satan the accuser can accuse all he wants. And like we were saying, most of those accusations are rightfully placed in our sin. Um, the spotlight on our sin is valid. The spotlight on um, other sin in the church often is valid. Um, but I love the heart of conviction and restoration of God that uh, Pastor Dave mentioned, where God's voice says, you did those things, come back to me. And thankfully for us, God leads us to repentance and takes our failures and fears and leaves them covered by the blood of Christ on that cross. Um, and the work has already been done. Um, and we get to stand on, on his victory. Uh, we're freely given and covered by the righteousness of Christ. So, At that point, I don't know about you, but my heart cannot then um, stop. Like it, You just can't help but shout out his praise at that point. We serve a God who will not be swayed or stopped by this enemy. So let's sing together. Dark tried to hide you and steal you away. Death tried to keep you inside of the grave. Yeah. 
There's nothing that can stop our God. There's nothing that can stop our God. There is nothing. There is nothing. There's nothing that can stop our God. We have an enemy who would love nothing more than to see us condemned by the wrong that we have done. Brothers and sisters, you and I sin. We've done it before, we will do it again. But there is hope in Jesus Christ. For when we sin, we have an advocate who pleads before the Father for us. He is Jesus Christ. And he will always convict in a way that leads us back to himself. Let's resist the accusing voice of our enemy who seeks only condemnation and open wide our hearts to the voice of God who calls us home to himself. Don't run from God. He is your only hope. Let us always channel the convicting voice of a holy God and never the accusing and fleshly voice of disdain and condemnation. Let's fight for each other and never against each other. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, be blessed now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.